for the rising sun on the last. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be thou our guide while life shall last, and our eternal home. Amen. Let's be seated. <clears throat> what a song. Isn't it true? I know there are, there are types of pain in this life that we can't escape, and uh, they are part of the Lord's dealing with us. But which of those perplexities and agonies are at least not lessened by meditating on eternity? Isn't that true? And you think, uh, we were there in James a few weeks ago, that what is your life? It is even a vapor. Man's consumed with making his little dash be as pleasurable and easy and fun as he can and prolonging it as long as he can. The, the spiritually minded Christian is consumed with making his dash count because that's all he has is that little dash. All right, join me if you would there in First uh, Corinthians 3. message will actually be very brief this morning. Um, yes, that is possible. If you've been here a long time, you maybe doubt that it is possible. It's sort of a, just a bit of a commentary on this passage as we walk through and, and just discuss some things uh, going forward in the upcoming weeks uh, and months as a church family. I think probably everybody here, at least most, are aware of the situation at Corinth. I'm not going to take the time to develop I think sometimes when a pastor opens up to this book, people are thinking, oh no, he thinks we're horribly carnal. Uh, that is not where we're going this morning, uh, but I have to at least touch on that on our way through to where we are going. Uh, but the church at Corinth had numerous issues that had to be dealt with. In fact, the book of 1 Corinthians is sort of a systemic, systematic manual. I can't say systemic, that's a bad word nowadays. Systematic manual on what's wrong with the church in that city. And of course, it was for their own good. Paul was trying to help them out of some of their confusion. And they're often thought of as exhibit A of a carnal church. And really, if you think about it, it's in some respects no surprise. There were some churches in that age that seemed to grow, go to maturity very quickly. Others struggled. I, I frankly, the older I get in the Christian life, I have more compassion on Corinth. Maybe because... I see how slow I am to grow a lot of times. And how many times I have to be told the same thing. I mean, you think of that church, and they're in the first century of this mystery called the New Testament assembly. You have to keep in mind at Corinth, they didn't have rows of theological books on the shelf. Uh, there was no church library full of missionary biographies. Oh, those hadn't been written yet. In fact, the New Testament had not been completed yet. So it was a very, very developmental phase, not just in their own life, but in the life of churches in general. And really, they were an eclectic blend of former pagans. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school. There were former LGBTQ people members in that church at Corinth. Now, now, Baron, they didn't, by the way, they didn't become homosexual Christians. 
They became Christians who renounced homosexuality. But do you think they brought some baggage with them? There were likely former temple prostitutes. It's a good likelihood. It's all sorts of pagan elements they had to turn their back on. So while their spiritual standing and their inner man was changed in an instant when they trusted Christ, the practical outworking of their Christian growth took time and a great deal of effort. And that's still true with all of us, including myself. Now, I find it incredible that with all that was going on there, Paul begins by talking about contention. And again, that's, that's, that has nothing to do with where I'm going this morning because that's not an issue at the moment. Um, but part of their contention, he, just, he had this heart to help them understand a balanced view, particularly of preachers and of church leadership. That, that was one of the things they were struggling with. And it was something that a lot of the early churches battled with. You know, look at verse 4. <laughs> For while one saith, I am of Paul, the other, I am of Apollos. Are ye not carnal? And he is bringing this up for the second time in this letter. Back in uh, the early part, he mentions Cephas or Peter. So there were these factions among this early church of one saying, well, I'm loyal to Paul and I'm, I'm loyal to Peter and I'm loyal to Apollos. Now, we don't know all the reasons they were saying that. It could have been personality. It could have been particular exploits. Maybe they just thought Peter had a better sense of humor. I don't know. But I think more likely it was they tended to gravitate towards the one of those men that had had the biggest impact in their life and said that that guy is necessary and uh, I don't want I don't want anyone else pouring into it. So much so that they were willing to get to the point and say Paul is best or Apollos is best or again Peter back in chapter 1. Now a balanced view on this is critical because I mean many passages in the New Testament talk about the other side. I mean on one hand when it comes to preachers, pastors, uh, men that God sends into that work, there's a proper kind of honor or respect and submission. Those are those are Bible terms. They're inarguable. There's giving the benefit of the doubt. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, because accusations are going to fly. There is, a, there is a proper kind of loyalty and thankfulness. Although, usually think about it in our Christian life. Think of the people that have poured into you and how really a lot of the time we're not given opportunity to pay it back. We're given opportunity to pay it forward. In other words, ever since the inception of the church, lives have poured into lives and those lives pour into other lives and those lives pour into other lives. It's kind of like uh, raising children. How old are you before you really truly appreciate your parents? A lot of times it's right about the time they're being removed from this world. Isn't it? One sentiment you hear a lot from people is, I only wish I could have said, or I only wish I would have done. 
And they have opportunity to pay it forward into the next generation, which pays it forward into the next generation, and the cycle goes on. But on the other hand, on the other side of this, which Paul is dealing with here, all men, ministers included, are finite, fallen, and dust, and are basically here to unpack their books for a little while, and whether they're removed by death or reassignment or something else, their work is very limited. But what I want to just talk for a minute on from this passage and zero in on is a divine view of human instruments. And uh, I do find it interesting that uh, you've heard me say it if you've been here a while, that I, I, I thank God that Romans 7 was written by Paul, that that colossal struggle as a Christian between flesh and spirit was actually written in all of its personal agony by the one whom we would consider to be the greatest Christian who ever lived. I don't think Paul would like that title, but I think most of us would probably say that. I also think it's terrific that the subject matter here is also, humanly speaking, addressed by Paul himself. Now, Paul was accused of a lot of things. He had many detractors. His ministry was not easy. In fact, some of the churches he planted, uh, Judaizing teachers would come in and distort the gospel or... Uh, people would come in and actually attack Paul's character. They would accuse him of being domineering and puffed up and all sorts of stuff. In fact, in the context, when when Paul made the statement that basically I rejoice that Christ is preached, whether in pretense or in truth, he's not saying, I don't care if it's a true or false gospel. He's saying, if the real gospel is preached in sincerity, I'm glad even if that person dislikes me for reasons they shouldn't. That's quite an attitude. But passages like this prove how very well Paul understood his own place, even as an apostle. Notice how he begins to address their viewpoint. He says, all right, you guys are saying Paul's my favorite, Apollos or Peter's my favorite. He doesn't start by vaulting one brother over another. You know, actually, here's why Peter's best. Or actually, here's why Apollos is. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't try to illustrate the failures of these men to drag them back down to earth. And isn't it true, our viewpoint of people, uh, sometimes we tend to either think too little of others or too much. It's very hard to get that right. At least I find that's the case. But he begins to address that by asking this question. Who then is Paul? You look, you know, uh, two millennia removed from that man. I mean, I hear that question, who is Paul? And I think, where do we start, right? <laughs> A guy called by Christ himself actually saw him for real. One of the most brilliant minds of the first century world. A guy who planted who knows how many churches in a very hostile environment. We have no idea how many churches he planted. They're all over the known world. Suffered unbelievable persecution, left for dead, was caught up to the third heaven again for real. Didn't write about it for 14 years because he didn't want to draw attention to it. And he only did mention it to draw attention away from sensationalism. A man who penned roughly half of the New Testament 
Well, much of that was spent running for his life and eventually was given the martyr's crown and complete victory to top it all off. Who is Paul? Boy. Who is Apollos? Hey, I'd like to meet him too. Can't wait. A trusted co-laborer of Paul. In fact, he's first mentioned in Acts 18. And the first things it says about him, an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. Boy, you talk about a combination. <laughs> a guy who's not only a walking Bible mentally, but gifted with a supernatural ability of public speaking. He was sort of the George Whitfield of the early church, if you're familiar with George Whitfield's history. So we know the human answers to those questions. Who is Paul and who is Apollos? I got news for you. If it was possible for Paul to walk in right now, I'd be there sitting down. Hey, brother, you get up, you say whatever you want for as long as you want, right? But that's not what Paul's getting at. We know the human answers to that question, but notice the divine answer. Who is Paul and who is Apollos, he says, but ministers? You know, it's really unfortunate that that term became a title because it's lost some of its poignancy. I mean, nowadays, if you say so-and-so is the minister, we don't use that much now. <clears throat> it was real big a couple centuries ago. He's the minister. Who's the minister? Well, he's the guy in the robe that everybody sort of clears out of the street when he comes by and asks him all the hard questions, right? <laughs> well, public view of ministers changes, I get that, but, but really that word minister, it means attendant or obsolete servant. That's what that means. It means somebody who simply does the bidding of a master, nothing more, nothing less. Obviously, I'm not in favor of slavery, but in the first century world, you'll recall that roughly somewhere in the neighborhood in the Roman Empire of one third to one half of the population, were they were slaves. So slaves being given command was a, was a, was a constant thing. It was something they were all familiar with. And Paul employed it frequently to teach things about our Christian life. But say you have a master who says, Go across the field and give that guy this meal. Nobody makes a big deal about the servant, do they? No, their, their eyes are on the master because they realize who it is that sent that servant. So Paul says, who is Paul and who is Apollos? Even an apostle saying this. Look, yeah, maybe I did a lot of stuff humanly, but he's saying... Even me, even Apollos, ministers, servants who do the bidding of another, nothing more, nothing less. And he says, we're ministers by whom you believed. In other words, we're conduits. We don't have divine life, he's saying. We do the bidding of the master. It's his power. It's his work. It's his glory. We just got to be the pipe. Even, he says, as the Lord gave to every man. 
Uh, you know, it's a really more modern phenomenon, but the idea of a a celebrity pastor is totally foreign to the New Testament. Uh, there have been guys that claim to be fundamental Baptist that actually said things like, God needs me to do His work. God's work... I think of a guy in Hammond, Indiana who had that perspective. God's work can't go on without me. Want to bet? <laughs> Want to bet? Notice how Paul describes their work. I mean, the Corinthians, they wanted to gravitate, and maybe rightly so, towards certain personalities or people who poured into them. And Paul says in verse 6, I have planted. Once again, can you get a simpler illustration than that? Than a guy out in the farm field, away from everybody else, sticking a seed in the ground. Not glorious, no world watching, just, just doing something simple. And Paul's saying, I didn't choose the seed, I didn't make the seed, I didn't create the ground, I just took the seed like the Master told me, I put it in the soil. I don't perform the miracle of germination or of growth. All right, so Paul says, all right, I, I put the seed in the ground. Apollos watered. Paul couldn't be there forever. Apollos comes along, he takes out his watering can and starts to go up those rows, spiritually speaking, and pour the water out. And, and Paul's saying, now look, Apollos may have had a slightly different part in this than I did. But he was pouring good water on good seed on good ground. And once again, man never, ever, ever gives the increase. God does. But God gave the increase. So Paul's telling them, yes, you've grown. Yes, good things have happened. Yes, God uses men. Yes, there's some giftedness in this church, he's saying, but... It's God who must get the credit. Now look at verse 7. Again, I think that we understand all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, but I suppose if this was written by somebody other than an apostle talking about an apostle, we might think, well, that, that doesn't sound like they're very great, grateful. Look at verse 7. So then neither, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth. And Paul's saying, whoever planted, whoever watered, in this case, me and Apollos, are absolutely nothing. Now, he's not teaching unthankfulness. He's not saying those that pour into you, just ignore it and say, well, you're nothing, you don't matter. That, that's not... But... He's giving a divine perspective on human instruments. He's saying, look, when it, when it comes down to it, God doesn't need anybody or anything to accomplish His work. Do you know God doesn't need churches? You and I need churches because God said we need churches. 
God doesn't need pastors. Churches do because God said they do and ordained it that way. But He Himself is bound to nothing and needs nothing. So Paul's saying God chooses to use human instrumentation for a while, but it's always Him that gives the increase if it's going to be given. Now notice verse 8. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. He that planteth and he that watereth are one. Boy, I tell you, if if you know what a textual sermon is, that'd be a good one. Because that has one meaning, but that could be applied to so many different things in the Christian life. It's true with us as individuals. I mean, stop. If you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, just think how many people, how many instruments have been used to pour into you? More... And I find it amazing, even in my hard-hearted stubbornness and uh, knowing a lot of things and, and, and then running away and then coming to Christ when I was 19. You know what I remembered? I remember Sunday school teachers that for all they knew, I kept running like an idiot. Some of them never know any different. Some of them I can't go tell. They're gone. I think, as far as I know. But God knows. (laughs) See, they were planting. They were watering. And here's the thing. He that plants and he that waters, they may not even know each other. It doesn't matter. Because it's God that gives the increase. This is true in the history of Christian theology. There's apostasy that's developing, obviously, as a progressive phenomenon. But really, our understanding of doctrinal areas as a whole, has grown. I try to be charitable of guys that lived 400 years ago and, and, and 300 years ago and some of their theological views because I try to remember, I, sometimes I don't do well at it, but I'm, I'm standing on their shoulders. I mean, I, I have sets of books on my shelf that took a godly man 35 years locked in his study to develop. He was planting. He was, he was watering. One of, the, one of my favorite illustrations of that. If uh, you've read the life of Matthew Henry at all, Matthew Henry's commentary, and uh, he allegorized a lot. He missed a lot. But there, boy, is that fantastic as far as his applications to things. It's really, it really is a tremendous set as long as you understand where he's coming from. But Matthew Henry, towards the end of his life, said something along the lines of, I've seen very little fruit. Many who were part of this church are no longer here and very few have been added to us. 
Now fast forward till he's gone. There's a young preacher who didn't have the same expositional ability as Matthew Henry. Actually read through Henry's commentary, I think it was four times, some of which was on his knees. That man's name was George Whitfield. <laughs> Matthew Henry never stood in cornfields before audiences of 40,000 people. He never preached the last sermon on Exeter Green, which I got to stand on a few years ago. It was magnificent. Matthew Henry never saw tens of thousands of people come to Christ. But you know what? That's fruit for him. Because one plants and another waters. And it's, it's God that gives the increase. It's true in the history of individual churches. If a church has been around a long time, there's those that plant, lay foundations. There's those that work in certain areas for a while, and and there's there's planters and there's and there's waterers, and God gives the increase. And uh, we could go on and on with those examples. But the bottom line is in that cycle, God knows who did what, and much of it man will never know on this earth. God's not only responsible for all true spiritual life and growth that occurs, no matter who or what He uses, He's also promised to see and reward all who are involved somewhere in that process. Let's just say, uh, let's just pick an example. Let's say there's a sermon preached by a pastor. Let's say it happened to be here. And people remembered it and lives were changed. Men tend to look at the visible instrumentation. But how much of that does God see and not man? How many people around the country were praying that morning? How many people in the church had been praying that week? You see, one plants, another waters. God gives the increase. And God's promised a reward, it says... Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And you see the word own repeated. Why? Different callings, different roles, different giftedness, different ages, different emphases, all sorts of differences. And uh, the Lord of glory will sort it all out. And he knows what each of us did with those talents of stewardships that were entrusted to us and will reward accordingly. And part of the point is Paul's making here between planting and watering. You know, we see this jokingly in our branches of military. They'll, uh, they'll joke with each other about which one's better. Um, you'll see that with uh, first responders. In fact, we were 
our son was sharing with us, he went through that uh, police academy. And uh, I said, hey, at the end of that police academy, did they, did they tell all you guys to become police officers? And he said, no, we, they told us to go join the fire department. He said, it must be nice to be treated like a hero everywhere you go instead of having people spit on your food and to get paid to have barbecues and lift weights. Now, there's a little bit of good-natured kidding, but there's a bit of a rivalry between really these two that are working together. Paul's saying, look, between one who plants and one who waters and one who builds beyond that, there's no competition. Do you know that there is no such thing as competition in the will and work of God? Carnal men try to introduce that. They do. I don't mean to be unkind. I just saw another flyer in the mail that was sent to me this morning. It bothered me when I was in school. It bothers me just as much now. I know people mean well but they want to turn everything into a contest. Here's the young preacher boys. Let's have a preaching contest. And you know what? I'm automatically thinking based on what criteria? How polished, how eloquent, how intelligent. None of the things that will lead to reward in the sight of God. It may sound harsh, but in my opinion, that just teaches hypocrisy. And it teaches little prancing showmen. I'm not trying to be unkind, but it's concerning. Well, why'd so-and-so get that prominent church? I'm a, I'm a better preacher. Says who? Who cares? There's no competition in the will of God. God's will for me is in harmony with God's will for you and you and you and you and they all... They all go together. We've had time to meditate on that recently. Some of you remember the battle with the Johnsons leaving that we had. And, uh, you know, the things that developed with our son heading to school down there would have never happened if the Lord did that, if the Lord hadn't done that. I'm able to look back and see that a little bit now, although it was certainly difficult at the time. All right, look at verse 9. We'll be done with this. <clears throat> For we are laborers together with God. What I, I, I would hesitate to, to grab onto that or come up with that if an apostle hadn't said it by divine revelation. We are laborers together. He says, we are co-workers of the Almighty. And that's not a title of pomp. It's, I think, a sense of wonderment. We get to come alongside, flawed and pathetic as we are, and actually be used to do God's work. But it's Him that gives the increase. Look what he says at the end of verse 9. He says, we are laborers together with God. If anything's getting done, that's what a minister is. But the local church... He says, ye are God's husbandry. Husbandry is a, it's a cultivated field. 
It's a farm that bears fruit. He says, we are co-labors with God. You, the local church, you're God's farm. He is the husbandman. He is the master of the vineyard. And he says, ye are God's building. Uh, He's not talking about this brick and mortar. He's talking about lives. He's saying, you are God's spiritual building. Think about this church and the six years that I've been here. It really, you know, I was actually writing about this in my journal this morning, just just thinking about all the ways we've seen people grow. I'm telling you, as a pastor, my metric is not purely filling seats. If you've been here any length of time, you've heard me say it over and over. You aim at depth. And God will take care of breadth. It's a thrilling thing to see the victories that have been won and the things that have happened. But that's because God gives the increase. God gives the increase. I actually rejoice to be able to say that this isn't my church. It's his church. This is not my vineyard. It's it's his vineyard. This isn't my building. Not this. That's not either. Just don't pay the mortgage. You'll find out whose building it is. The spiritual building. It's not my building. It's, It's God's building. Now I've said all that to sort of introduce some things that I'd like to discuss with all of you heavy things. Um, It's really been for the last 13 months, I think probably more than that, but at least that long. I've been personally agonizingly wrestling with something extremely weighty, uh, something that I shared with uh, just a couple here, and that was recently, and a select handful of individuals outside this room, you know, Uh, The scriptures tell us there's safety in a multitude of counselors. Of course, that assumes it's the right counselors. I'm thankful for a number of godly older pastors that uh, we can sharpen each other and I can share things with. And essentially, as I've been wrestling with this, I've tried to keep tinkering with things to constantly revise schedule, uh, maybe ignore it and hope it goes away. And, And here's what I'm talking about. It's essentially this. It's a a constant growing sense of imbalance in my own life and obligations, especially as our children get older and their discipleship needs get more complex. Those of you that have watched teenagers head into adulthood, it's no longer do you want to play trucks. It's a lot more complicated things that that take a lot more time, and they should. Now, as a bivocational pastor, obviously, I I have to wear a lot of hats. And I knew that coming in. There were no illusions about that. 
And, and I really feel like over these years, the church has always done all they possibly could uh, to help in practical areas. Uh, you, you are not a demanding church. You aren't. Um, and what I mean is, there's a real graciousness here of understanding the time balances we all have and things like that. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate that. Trust me, I've heard some nightmare scenarios from ministers who would say the opposite. That, that's, not, that's not my thoughts. But nevertheless, I, I've come to the conclusion after a tremendous amount of agony and prayer that I can't be a flourishing Christian, attentive husband, the right kind of father of seven children, three of them teenagers, and run a business 30 to 40 hours a week and be a truly effective pastor of a truly growing, developing church all at the same time. One of the things I've tried to maintain is that some of you, we, we had this conversation at the other building when I first met you. I said, the church can only be my fourth priority. My walk with God has to be first. My relationship with my wife has to be second. My relationship with my children has to be third. And then after that has to come everybody else. Honestly, practically, I think I've been letting that slip for a lot of months. Now, don't get me wrong. We have a wonderful marriage. Our family's doing well. We have a great relationship with our children. But I can see looking ahead. If I don't make some changes, the day's going to come where I wish I did. And I only get to raise my family once and I want to be effective in the Lord's service as effective as possible. So in short, it can get to the point where you feel like you can't do anything excellently because it feels like you don't have enough time to do anything. And don't get me wrong, I understand in ministry, in life in general, we have those seasons. But we have to recognize, are these things that the Lord wants us to just press on through? Or are these things that the Lord is prompting us to make some life decisions about? So this morning, I'm announcing my resignation as pastor of this church. There's no controversy. There's no internal strife. There's no church issue. And, and I just, I'm, I'm just so burdened in heart to say this. This is nobody's fault. I know some of you are probably going to think, oh, I, I shouldn't have done this or I shouldn't have asked that and we shouldn't have. No. It has been a privilege to walk with many of you through difficulty. 
that's what pastors are supposed to do. And I don't do that because somebody stood there and made me. I want to do that. But here's the thing. I want to be able to do it well. While I'm discipling them well. And while I'm walking with God well. It's a matter of recognizing seasons of life in our family and ministry. It's really nothing more than that. I want to thank all of you for the years of ministering together. There's so many, so many memories here. And, and I want to, I, I'm not just saying this. I was really praising the Lord this morning, thinking through. <laughs> Growth in individual lives. You know how it is. If you're sitting in your yard and you plant a tree and you stare at that tree every day, you don't think it's growing. A neighbor comes back in six months and goes, wow, that really grew. <laughs> Many of you have grown. You may, have not, you may not see it. Oh, we've seen it. We've seen service to one another and hospitality and fellowship and, and sharpening each other growing and marriages taking good steps forward and family relations being healed and, and, and some long-standing things that being dealt with. It's thrilling. But I, I want to challenge you. Don't stop growing. Just because a human instrument who watered for a while is reassigned. You guys need each other. And you will need each other more in the weeks ahead than you ever have. Embrace that. Embrace it. Don't run from it. Pastors are conduits, messengers, and servants, and their candle soon goes out, and the work of the Lord presses on. I also want to thank so many of you for helping with our house. I know some may candidly ask, do you think building a house in the middle of this helped? I'll be honest, not sure, but the, the reasoning behind that was one major last attempt to bring things into balance obligation-wise. That was why we did it. It may have shaken out differently than I thought, but the Lord's ways are mysterious. I can't, I can't explain all that. While this has been a wrestle, building that house was done with the intention of staying. It was. I'll tell you honestly, I've had to wrestle with this own heart of mine. Looking around going, Lord, you got to be kidding me. I don't want to leave here. I don't want to leave this. I don't want to leave them. I don't... <laughs> It's not my church. We have a beautiful piece of property. I don't know the timeline, but you know what's going to happen to it? It's going to burn. It's going to burn. And in that day when things burn, or before that, when I myself am thinking of 
the headstone I'm going to be put under if I have a chance to think about it. You know what's going to, you know what's going to matter to me? <laughs> Did I do my best to please God in every known area? That's what matters. Now, going forward, um, I will plan to keep leading church services here through the rest of August. The men's camp out, the ladies' luncheon, we're still doing them. I hope, all, I, I hope people can still come. I will do what I can to assist in the uh, transition. I've already contacted multiple men who may be able to help with pulpit supply and uh, pastoral search or other things, practical help. Uh, most of you know them already. Uh, next Sunday, the 8th, I really tried to avoid it. I had to be out of town one of these days. The only day it worked was to be gone next Sunday. Um, my family will be here. I will not. Uh, Bill Jenkins will be filling in. Like I said, I'm 95% sure. Uh, he, he, I'm not, I, I need to hear back with definitiveness, but I'm pretty sure that will be him. Otherwise, we'll figure something else out. Now, I told the young people, uh, you memorize those verses, you're getting ice cream. That's still happening. We're going to figure out a way to make that happen, all right? I'm not forgetting that. Um, we will be praying and searching for the Lord's next assignment for us and what's next for all of you. I mean, I was privileged to water here for a while, but others need to come along and water. I will tell you this. There is a need churches like this in this city. And I can tell you confidently based on the character of God, the best days for this church can still be ahead. That's not hyperbole. That's not cliche. That's truth. Think of the silent guest in the room now. Can you picture him? Eyes of flaming fire, hair white like wool. <laughs> Out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword as he walks among the churches. Jesus is here. This is his church. It's his church. We still have a house to finish at some point. I don't know exactly what's next for us. And again, I'm, I'm just trying to be candid on all this stuff. Normally, I would never encourage a pastor to do something like this without knowing where he's going next. I really haven't had much heart to shove on a bunch of other doors. I'm just confident of this step. I have some ideas of what me coming. I will, I will tell you this. I'm called to ministry. I'm called to preach. I have no intention of walking away from that. It'll be ministry somewhere. I truly don't know if it's north, south, east, or west. I have no idea. What we're trying to focus on is to be prepared to do the will of God wherever that is. I hope it's not Death Valley, California, but I'd be willing to go there. You know what I mean. Now, this is not the end of relationships here, I hope. 
No contradictions in the will of God. Oh, we have some dear friends here. I hope that continues. I do. Some of you are still in you fishing with. Hope that still happens. We're not just falling off the earth. We still want to be a blessing to you as much as we can. But as of now, it looks like our last Sunday here will be August 29th. And believe me when I tell you the heaviness in the soul of mine has been hard to describe. I think the only reason I'm not breaking down right now is because I maybe don't have much tears left. And I don't say that for sympathy. I say it so you understand this has not been easy. And maybe I'm forgetting something, but as far as I can remember, this has by far been the most difficult decision of my life. Not the most important. Coming to Christ and marrying my wife were more important, but I told her marrying you was easy. This decision has been anything but easy. But after a year of wrestling with it, I'm confident in the Lord's direction, even though the emotions protest with fury. And I have to put my own important, most important stewardships first. Now we're going to close with prayer in a minute. I drove my own vehicle on purpose this morning so that at some point my family can go eat. I plan to stay as long as anybody wants to talk or cry or pray or ask questions or anything else. I don't know how hungry I'll be anyway. So I I will be here for a while. If you have any questions or anything like that, please feel free to ask. I will be as transparent as as I possibly can. Let's pray. Father, in so many ways, we just, we hate transition. I do. Lord, I'm convinced of your will here that the emotions are having a hard time saying they like it. Lord, you don't need me to commit anything to you because you already own everything. Yet as much as I can, I I want to commit this, this flock, this vineyard, this spiritual building, this light in a dark world. I commit it into your keep and care. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to be assured of your great love and affection and that your ways are perfect. I pray, Lord, you'd help them to see that you will absolutely walk with them through the tunnel. You're willing to come out with them the other side. Lord, you know I have many more questions than I have answers right now. And probably so do some here. But we thank you that you can be trusted. We thank you, Lord, that you care for us. 
We thank You that You do not change. And we thank You, Lord, that someday, someday very soon, although it seems long to us, there will be no tears. There will be no goodbyes. There will be no change. There will be no distance. There will be no sorrow. So Lord, we rejoice that that day is coming, but yet we ask for your grace and help as we still dwell here below. And those things are shielded from our sight, at least in their fullness. I pray that you'd help this assembly to walk forward in unity and love and charity and service. I pray you'd give them great wisdom to work through this transition. Father, I pray you'd supply what's needed. You make no mistake. Thank you for the time walking together here. And Lord, we trust that fellowship here is is not going to end, even if distance intervenes. It's just one step closer to glory. Lord, help us as we pray and talk and cry and share and ask and heal and go forward together. I thank you, Lord, for letting me come and be your co-laborer, although you don't need me. I thank you for letting me water. I thank you, Lord, for the growth. And I pray that would continue because these dear people are your workmanship and you give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, let's all stand. Let's sing sing one verse of Amazing Grace together before we dismiss.